Well, if you've joined us since the beginning of our service this morning, once again, welcome to Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. We are delighted to have you with us in this Sunday after Thanksgiving, known in the church calendar as the very first Sunday of Advent, as we anticipate and prepare for the celebration of the Feast of Christmas. Uh, we are in a passage this morning, Jeremiah chapter 33, a passage that I would imagine not many of us here in this room might immediately associate with Advent or with Christmas, but believe it or not, it is one of the most traditional passages used in um, the church over the ages to prepare the hearts of God's people for uh, the coming of Christ in the first Sunday of Advent. It is in the regular readings of what is known as the lectionary, going back both in the Roman Catholic Church but also in the Anglican tradition, um, Jeremiah chapter 33, uh, and the book of Consolation as this section in the book of Jeremiah is known for is often used on the first Sunday of Advent. And we're uh, keeping with that tradition uh, this year with the selection of passages that we're uh, using for Advent to both prepare our hearts in remembrance of Christ's first coming, but also ask the Lord to fit us for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you were unaware of the tension that is sometimes found in the season of Advent, a season that looks back in one sense to Christ's coming, but a season that also looks forward to Christ's second coming, it was that very reality that the people of Israel experienced as they were looking to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they didn't know him by that name. They knew him by the name Messiah. That's who they were looking for coming, as we're going to read in Jeremiah 33. But in the context of Jeremiah 33, a dark moment in the nation of Israel's history, they're looking back to a golden age with King David and King Solomon and the rise of power of the people of Israel and the beautiful temple. They're looking back to an age of God's Shekinah glory, Him coming and revealing Himself as their Redeemer, their Savior, and their King. And they're also looking forward to a time of which they will be restored when Messiah will come, uh, the greater son of David, who will restore the fortunes that they have now lost as the people of Israel. And if you would just look, maybe even turn back in your bulletin to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, just to look at uh, some verses that you're very familiar with and to notice that you're singing this very moment in Israelite history. Notice there in verse 1, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Ransom captive They're in captivity. They need to be ransomed that mourns in lonely exile here. That's the moment of Jeremiah 33. That's where we're going to be until the Son of God appear. All right, so the longing of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is actually set in the context of the darkest moment in Israelite history. And so it's important to realize these, these antiphonal um, 
uh, hymns and carols that we sing are often set in the dark history of the people of Israel as they long for a new dawn. And so as we read Jeremiah 33, I want you to, to recognize that these moments of, these words of promise, these words of peace and salvation that are being hoped for, that God would come and rescue His people Israel, is actually surrounding uh, the whole season of Advent. And the part of the reason why we're focusing on uh, this text of Scripture uh, this morning. Our reading begins in Jeremiah chapter 33, beginning in verse 14, and we'll continue our reading all the way to verse uh, 22. This is God's Word. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our Righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that the day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken." So that he shall not have a son to reign on the throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. The grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we now, having heard this word read in the presence of your people, attend to it and ask for your Holy Spirit to attend to us as we attend to it, that we might read it and understand it, that we might mark it and learn from it, that ultimately we might inwardly digest this word. And it might mead to us the spiritual nutrient that our hearts this morning crave. Would you meet us by the power of the Holy Spirit now and encourage us from this your word? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There was an article written just a handful of weeks ago by the well-known columnist David Brooks. He often writes for the New York Times, this particular article written in the Atlantic Monthly. I got a chance to catch up on some reading over Thanksgiving and got to read David Brooks's new article in The Atlantic entitled this, America is Having a Moral Convulsion. That's the name of the article. The subtitle reads this way, Levels of Trust in Our Country, in Our Politics, Our Institutions, and in One Another Are in Precipitous Decline. And when social trust declines, nations fail. Can we get it back before it's too late? 
Now, that little question, can we get it back, the social trust that we've lost as a nation in politics, in media, in institutions, even in each other, Brooks would like to argue is actually the glue that holds people together, trust. And when that social trust is lost, the fabric of a nation or a community or of a church or of a family or no matter what uh, collection of people that we're talking about, when that trust is lost, that community begins to collapse. And he catalogs in this article reasons for why he believes that for many years the social fabric in our own nation has been facing the kinds of challenges that we now see uh, kind of rising to a boiling point in this moment in, in history. And he does his own little diagnostic. But he asks that question, which I think actually is a part of the question of the text before us. Can we get it back? Can we get the trust back? Before it's too late. Historically, that question has been asked of our own nation. It's been asked of churches. It's, it's been asked of, of communities uh, at varieties of level. Can we get back to or how can we turn this train around and go back to who it is that we had set out to be, maybe who it is we once were, but have now lost our way. Interestingly, if you've done much history, a study in the early days of America, maybe specifically in the 17th century in the American Puritan era, you would know they had almost a script for these kinds of moments, moments of crisis, whether it was a famine that hit the land, whether it was a skirmish, uh, within a community, there was essentially a formula, a method, or a script uh, that was used. It, it comes under the title uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah. You, you may or may not have heard of it, but a Jeremiah is a form of rhetorical communication, a kind of. Um, a kind of uh, literary genre where we communicate in order to awaken conscience and so that people will turn back to their foundational ideals. It's called a Jeremiah. It has actually a fairly uh, consistent structure. Um, according to uh, one writer, he says, A Jeremiah starts by rehearsing the crisis of a present age in light of a people's moral decay. It's the kind of sermon or the kind of political speech where we talk about the crisis of the hour, the great dilemma and complexity that we experience as a people at this moment. And the reason for it is that we have slipped into moral decay. The reason that this has come upon us the challenge of this moment is because we've lost who it is that we had set out to be. And we have fallen very far from what it is that we had hoped to become. The Jeremiah would continue by contrasting the faithfulness of previous generations to the slippage that we see during the current time. That we are not the people that we had set out to be. 
that our founding fathers or our original uh, founders had an ideal that was in place that they were pursuing and we have lost the vision for it. And now it's as if we are a shadow of what we once were, a note of dismay and a sense of shame that we have slipped from what looked like early days of promise now into a kind of ditch of decay. The Jeremiah continues and holds out a hope and a promise that as destitute as the current situation is, there is hope still while there is life. This commitment rests on you, the current generation, to turn from the sin, religiously speaking, or to return to the foundations of our founding vision Knowing that if we do so, God will return, bless His people, and restore to us the things that we have lost. It will require hard work. It will require us overcoming our differences and learning to love our neighbor, the one who is right now being categorized as an enemy. But with patience and with endurance, we too can prevail and we can accomplish that which it is that we had set out to become. Do you notice this rhetoric? You should. You hear it every election here. Uh, Jeremiah can show up in a sermon, as it often did in the American Puritan era, but it often shows up in some of the best speeches of politics over the centuries. If you were to go back and look at some of Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, famous speeches, you would see that he uses the technique of the Jeremiah. That we are a people who are established in this way, but we are not living up to that which we established, but there's still a chance that we can become the people that we are if we do these things. Uh, you would hear it in some of Barack Obama's most famous speeches. Or going back to an earlier generation, Ronald Reagan was a quintessential speaker of the Jeremiah. It's a kind of thing that we've become so accustomed to, we hardly even hear it anymore. But that language of the Jeremiah, this rhetorical flair, this, this almost literary genre of speech communication, somewhat unique to the American context, comes directly from the prophet Jeremiah. The Jeremiah of literary genre is following the pattern of the book of Jeremiah. The, the pattern of the Old Testament prophet who's before us today. A prophet who speaks of the devastating consequences of a people who have forsaken their moral compass, who have neglected their God and have now served idols. He calls them to scathing rebuke and to repentance in order that they might experience the promise of God's coming salvation. This is in some ways a snapshot of the whole of the book of, of Jeremiah. Uh, the whole of what this prophet is calling the people of Israel to. Now it's important that we understand since we're just plopping down in, in a sense the, the middle of this book, even the latter half of this book, to kind of know a little bit about this prophet, this moment in the nation of Israel's history, to understand the flow of what he's getting at in these words of promise that are before us here in Jeremiah 33. It's important to know that Jeremiah's ministry spanned only about 40 years. 
beginning in the 620s of the BC to the 580s BC, leading up to the destruction of the, the temple of Jerusalem. A great deal of Jeremiah's personal ministry is recorded in the Scripture. In fact, we probably know more about Jeremiah as a prophet than almost any of the other prophets. He hailed from a priestly family and was likely a direct descendant of Abiathar, who was one of the leading priests during the time of King Solomon. In obedience to God, Jeremiah never married. He never had a wife. He never had any children. He lived a kind of lonesome and lonely, we might even say exiled, existence. Uh, most of his prophetic ministry, he actually spoke to and dramatized. That is, he actually lived out the prophecies that he spoke. He would prophesy of exile, and then he would leave the city and live outside the city to display, as it were, what's coming for the people of Israel. One of the reasons he never married or had children was that he prophesied that the next generation of Israel would be carried off and destroyed into captivity. So he, not having children, was as if to display the loss of an entire generation. The book of Jeremiah is filled with promises or prophecies of coming desolations for the people of Israel, the loss of Jerusalem, the destruction of the holy temple. And in fact, he lived through those very realities. Uh, Babylon is the world power at the time. Nebuchadnezzar, that unholy uh, ruler, is its leader. And Jeremiah prophesied the atrocities that would take place in the 580s B.C., when the ten tribes of Israel, already exiled to the north, now begin to experience the destruction of their holy city. When the powerful King Nebuchadnezzar comes to town and lays siege to Jerusalem and ultimately destroys God's city and carries off his people into captivity. Even Jeremiah will spend time as a prisoner of war. But as the armies of Babylon are gathering around the people of Israel, Jeremiah opens his mouth in this section of the book of Jeremiah, actually beginning in chapter 31, extending to Jeremiah chapter 33, which is known as the book of peace or the book of consolation. It's, it's what we might say one of the few bright spots in the whole of the book of Jeremiah. In fact, I'd like to suggest to you, if you know any sections in the book of Jeremiah, it's probably somewhere around 2911, I know the plans that I have for you to give you a hope and a future, of which we all think is talking about us, but it's actually talking about something different. But nevertheless... That passage, extending all the way to Jeremiah 33, is probably the sections you're familiar with because they are the happy sections, so to speak, of the book of Jeremiah. We're in that section, Jeremiah chapter 33, in this classic Advent passage that speaks of a coming day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. That in those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. 
It's no wonder historically that the church has turned to these verses specifically, verses 14 to 16 in the text of Jeremiah 33 during a season of Advent. Advent, a season of waiting, a season of anticipation, of having to trust in a promised future that you don't yet experience. And in a situation for the people of Israel that it seems almost impossible to imagine. I want you for just a moment to to imagine the political and situational climate of Israel at the moment that Jeremiah is actually recounting these words here in Jeremiah 33. I mean, you thought our political situation was bad. They're being carried off into captivity. They're watching the smoke billow up from Jerusalem, and they're seeing the utter destruction of the holy temple, which for them embodied the very promises of God in the Old Testament. The smoke that they're used to seeing would be coming up from sacrifices, but the smoke that they're seeing is coming up from siege. It's the end of what they believed were the promises of God fulfilled for them as a nation, going back centuries, back to Abraham before they were even a people. And now Jeremiah comes to them in the moment where they're being carried off and all they see is the destruction behind them and Babylon before them of which an entire generation will be held captive for 70 years. And he says, don't lose heart, coming are the days. It's a tough audience to win. It's a tough audience to win. The promises of God will be fulfilled. A righteous branch will come forth from David who will occupy the throne. Jerusalem will be saved. And and Judah will dwell securely. And you, the sinful people of Israel, who have laid the foundations for this exile in your unrepentance and rebellion against God, your name will be called, The Lord is our Righteousness. Oh, it's soaring with regards to its anticipations of the future, but it would have hit ears that would have been completely confused with regards to the surroundings of what it is that they were experiencing in their own day and times as they saw loved ones die by the thousands in this siege. And everything that they had hoped for and built for centuries going up in smoke. It's in the midst of despair that God speaks hope into these exiles. And his promises are far beyond anything that they would know to even imagine. I once heard Edmund Clowney, the great biblical theologian, late biblical theologian now from Westminster Theological Seminary, say that God's promises are so far beyond our imaginings, we wouldn't even know how to ask for them if we could. He argued that sometimes our prayers are so small and puny that God doesn't answer them because He can't or decides not to, but because His answer is so much greater than our petitions, He won't reduce His blessings to our puny petitions. That's what this would have sounded like, far beyond imaginings, complete hyperbole and exaggeration. And yet this is exactly what God is going to do. 
Now, this generation, you know, is never going to see it. You do realize that. And even those who are the youngest, who are exiled, who later do get the chance to come back under the rule of Zerubbabel, who is a kind of successor to the throne of David. He will be in the first year of King Cyrus's reign. The people of Israel, after the 70 years of exile in Babylon, will be brought back into the Holy Land. They will be brought back into Jerusalem, the Holy City. Even they who would have maybe a faint memory of the glories of what was Israel before, we're told that the priests would see the laying of the foundation of the second temple in Jerusalem 70 years later. And those young priests, as they were carried off years ago, will see the foundations of the new temple being built and they will weep because it will be nothing in comparison to what it was before. And when they build the temple and when they build um, all of the sacrifices back and during the, the, the rule of Zerubbabel and those who follow him in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, you know what we see, the glory cloud of God never comes down. And the glory of the people of Israel that Jeremiah had prophesied in Jeremiah 33 would happen in their return from exile never took place. You can imagine that group of people rereading Jeremiah 33 and thinking to themselves, now I remember when the weeping prophet, as he was known, when the weeping prophet told us that when we came back, God's going to restore the things which we lost. Well, we're back. We're working at it. And the magic doesn't seem to be here. The work of the Spirit of God doesn't seem to be with us. This is not exactly the return from exile that we anticipated. It would seem as if the promises of God not only didn't succeed during the time of Jeremiah, but even during the return from exile under King Zerubbabel. But of course, the passage wasn't talking about the return from exile. Not historically speaking. Jeremiah is looking as the prophets often look. In the way that we would look, say, at a, at a mountain range. When you look at a mountain range and you see that peak in the distance that you're heading towards and you see beyond that peak another peak and you see just beyond that peak even another peak. And as the prophets look through the lens of God's revelation, they see that peak and that peak and that peak and they are to them like one on top of the other. But as you come to those peaks, you know what you find out? There's a long stretch of valley between them. A long stretch of time that as the prophets foretold them, it was as if they were all one thing. But the reality is there are multiple things, multiple fulfillments, multiple veils of history that are being passed through, each building upon another. And here as Jeremiah speaks of the promises of the future, he passes through multiple peaks. Peaks that certainly have a slight resemblance to things that took place during the time of Zerubbabel, but definitely are not fulfilled. But to a greater peak, a peak that wouldn't come for 500 years later, with the opening of the New Testament, when all of a sudden, behold, the days are coming, are fulfilled with the words, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. 
No one saw that coming. (laughs) No one saw that coming. 500 years from the time that the prophet Jeremiah is speaking these words, that the righteous branch that would burgeon from David, the same shoot that will come up from the stump of Jesse, same language from the prophet Isaiah, would be none other than this baby boy born of the Virgin Mary who traveled to Bethlehem to be registered because Joseph was of the house and the lineage of David. No one saw that coming. In the midst of the desolations of the destruction of Jerusalem, in the midst of the collapse of the temple, and the glory of what is being prophesied in Jeremiah 33, no one would have foreseen that Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon would be well, would be off of the stage of human history by this point. Now we have this thing unforeseen known as Rome who's now much greater than Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And yet it would be during this moment that the righteous branch would appear. And that Simeon, as he held the Lord Jesus Christ in his hands, would use, as it were, language from Isaiah and Jeremiah to say, My eyes have seen the salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And that at his baptism, when Jesus would come there to John the Baptist, who would push back against this baptism, saying, I need to be baptized by you. I I don't need to be baptizing you. And Jesus says, for all righteousness' sake, let it be so for now. He is the one who's come to execute justice and righteousness. This righteous branch burgeoning from the stump of David. This one who has come to stand in the path of the Levitical priests. The one who has come once for all to die for his people, Romans 3. The righteous for the unrighteous. That right now the aroma of his sacrifice present before the Father in heaven has satisfied By paying the penalty for our sins and granting to us His righteousness. We will be called Jerusalem. You will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Do you know that's your name if you're in Christ today? The Lord is your righteousness. Your standing before Him wasn't what you've done. Your standing before Him is what He has done. We as His people are known as the Lord is our righteousness. And this King of David, we are told from Jeremiah 33, will always be on the throne. There will never lack a son of David who will be on the throne. And I'm here to tell you today that He is resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of His Father in heaven, and He lives to make intercession for you and me. This is who Jesus Christ is. This is the one whom we have come to celebrate today. The one in whom the people of Israel would never see in the day of Jeremiah. A people who waited with anticipation and in trust for a time that they never saw. Waiting in faith is the spirit of hope. It's the spirit of hope. It's waiting in faith. 
A lot of us are waiting in faith on a lot of things right now that we may or may not see. Certainly not in the time frames that we would expect to see them or desire to see them. We don't know how the future will unfold. We don't know how the plan of redemption will ultimately play out. But as we sit today between the comings of the Lord Jesus Christ, we sit as people who are firmly rooted in a first advent where the fulfillment of all of what God has promised has been fulfilled in Christ and we are in Him. But the consummation and the, full, full, the fullness of all the benefits of the salvation that is ours in Christ is still in the future. And we wait a day in which He will return when, as the hymn writer would put it, the clouds would be rolled back like a scroll. And Jesus would come from heaven to earth. And He would establish His kingdom with us as His people forevermore. That at the end of this passage we're told that the sons of David will be multiplied like the sands on the seashore, uh, like the stars in the sky. You see, Jeremiah is seeing another peak, isn't he? He doesn't just see to the peak of Jesus' coming. He sees to the peak of Jesus' return. Because the foreshadowings of what Jeremiah gives us here in chapter 33 isn't all landing in the opening chapters of Matthew and Luke. It's landing ultimately in the final chapters of Revelation. Which is why this is a perfect passage for Advent. Because you, my people, God's people today, we wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a people in waiting. And we have been told that as a people in waiting, there will be an experience on this earth that will feel like exile. Like we're a people without a country. Being dragged away, as it were, by rulers to places that we don't call home. To circumstance we don't recognize as holy. And it should stir within us a hope and a longing, which is at the spirit of Advent, a longing for things to be made right for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Advent is not merely a season of the year where we feel the warm and fuzzies about the Lord Jesus Christ coming and get caught up in the trappings and the traditions of this moment. It's a time where we ache with the longing for what we wish was true now. But what we know will be true at just the right time. Between the long gap between the mountain of Christ's first coming and the mountain, the final mountain of Christ's second coming. We are in the valley. There is a light at the top of that mountain as if a sun is rising, a dawn, and the beautiful colors, the oranges and the yellows, they're there if you can see them as you look to the horizon of the second coming of Christ. But you sit and the valley is still dark. But the light is coming. The light is coming. And we are a people in exile 
who wait in faith for the moment that that light crests above that mountain. And we will know even as we are known, for we will be like Him, and we will see Him as He is. Don't bed down those feelings of loss and sorrow. Feelings of not being home even when you're at home. For those feelings are a clue to a deep secret about who you've been made for and the place that you have been designed for. The place of Christ's return and the person of Christ for you in glory. This Advent... We look forward to that day as we sit in the darkness of the valley and watch for the light. He has promised it. He will surely do it. Father in heaven, we would ask that you would grant to us such a longing, holy longing, that Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 8. The longing for the redemption of our bodies of all things being made right. It's all too clear that we're not there yet. And we may even try and find ourselves seeking to bed down the restlessness of our soul by nostalgia and tradition. We might even use the Marketing campaigns and the trappings of this season as a way to inoculate ourselves from the restlessness down deep inside. Would you keep us from that temptation? Would we instead find, as Augustine found years ago, that our hearts will be restless until they rest in Thee? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Your church awaits. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.